that. And the word of God reads, Masters, give your, bir- give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open, would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains that I may, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to, how you ought to answer each other, each one, excuse me. Titerius, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending you, I am sending to you for this very purpose, that he may know our, your circumstances and comfort in your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is, one, who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. There you go. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you. Welcome him and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my fellow servant workers of the kingdom of God who are of, circum, who are, who are of, circum, who are of circumcision. They have proved to be of comfort to me. Epharsius, who is one of you, a bondservant of, of Christ greets you always, laboring fervently f- for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Lucidia, and those who are in Hyperhopias. Luke, the beloved physician of Demas, greet you. Greet, you, greet the brethren who are in Lucidia and Naphias, and the church that is in his house. Now, then, this epistle is, is read among you. See that it is read also in the church of, Los, of Lucidians, that you likewise read the apostle from Lucidia, and say to Archippus, take heed in the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this blessed time where you have called us together as your people to worship you, to hear your voice in the pages of Scripture, to have fellowship with you and one another, and to just rejoice in your miraculous work. It's so sweet to hear the voice of the saints gathering and singing and talking and encouraging one another and praying for one another. God, we thank you that you have done such a beautiful thing amongst your people. And so now as we turn our attention to your word, Father, would you speak to us? Would you reach into our hearts, God, and shine light on the dark places? Lift our eyes to see the glory of our Savior and his cross and his gospel. And we ask for your help, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of Colossians today, if you guys want to turn there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to go through chapter 2, verse 4. This is a text that I hope will realign our 
minds and our hearts and our thinking this morning, whatever it is that you've got crowding the space in your brain, I hope that this uh, simplifies and clarifies a lot of that for you. I hope that it gives you uh, a fresh perspective on what we're doing here. Um, and so I've titled it for you note takers, y'all with your notebooks, uh, The Aim of Life, The Aim of Life, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known. Knowing Christ and Making Him Known. By the way, my name is Dan, not Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, He's not with us today. We get confused a lot because people say, oh, he's the bald guy. And then Scott, Aaron, Rob, and I are all standing there like, yeah. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Dan. Uh, our <laughs> senior teaching pastor is uh, in Monterey this weekend. So you got me. All right, Colossians chapter 1. So just a quick bit of introduction here. We can't just parachute down into the text without having any understanding of what's going on here. Um, so if you guys are familiar with the book of Colossians, it's one of what are called the prison epistles. These are letters that Paul wrote during his Roman house arrest, which, again, side note, before we even get started, did not discourage him from his ministry in the slightest, nor did his expectation of being executed, you know, a few years later. Uh, this man was about the gospel, and nothing was going to deter him from the work that God had given him to do. And so he's writing here from imprisonment, writing to churches, and he's writing to the church at Colossae, which was a church like seems almost all of the first century churches that was plagued with false teaching. Um, a lot of the times I think we romanticize the early church. We say, man, if we could just be like the first century church, the real church, you know, we would really have it going on. If you read through the New Testament, they had some sketch stuff going on in the early church. It was not the glory days. It was the all-over-the-place days. People were doing heinous things, celebrating them, following after all kinds of false doctrines. That's why the New Testament is always correcting people's understanding and their uh, walk with Christ. And so there's nothing new under the sun, amen? It's the same packages rewrapped and repackaged. Uh, false teaching has not really changed that much in the past 2,000 years. Um, so this false teaching that we find here in the book of Colossians that Paul is going to warn them about, we don't know exactly what this teaching was. We just know some things about it. It's not really named. I believe it was something that was probably localized to that region there. But we do know that this teaching was not of God, and it was not according to Christ. And in many ways, it's not too different from the same tricks that Satan lures people away with today. I'm going to give you guys a very brief lesson on false religions, and then we'll actually get into the text. All false religions, when you boil them down and reduce them to their core, they generally fall into the same patterns. So this is a good way for you guys to identify false teaching when you hear it. Same patterns. Number one, they will in some way deny the power of Christ alone to save through faith alone. Christ alone, faith alone, that is done away with. They will make new sets of rules and works for man to add to faith in order to be right before God, in order to justify himself, or new knowledge that we must acquire in order to be right with God. There's always got to be something extra that you don't have that you can come and get 
from our, you know, group who will tell you what the Bible really says. Not throwing any elbows at any particular groups there. This is just the characteristics of false teaching. And then number two, they will in some way bring Jesus down from his rightful place of majesty. This one is key. You'll see it every time. Either he's not God, or he's not fully God, or he's a God, or he's a, he's a great teacher, or he was a great man, or yada, yada. The list goes on. I mean, the stuff abounds. There are really only two things that are needful in this life. There are two things that will make all the difference. There are two things that are worth living for, and there are two things that are worth dying for when it's all said and done. There are two things that we can pour our lives out for and strive for that we will never regret, and those are the two things that Paul gave his life to entirely, and that is to know Christ and to make him known. It's as simple as that. That is the aim of life. It is the pursuit of the most value and the highest joy and of the greatest reward. So let's read together. Colossians 1, verse 24 He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And so Paul says here, and in Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 12, Philippians 3, 2 Timothy 2, this is a common thing that Paul says that to suffer for Christ in this life was something to rejoice in. And this is one of those concepts that is just so contrary to our natural way of thinking. This cannot be grasped by the natural human mind because the natural person cannot accept this. If we are nothing more than pawn scum, if we are nothing more than fancy monkeys that have no true purpose or calling or value whatsoever, then suffering is to be avoided at all costs in this life, right? Right? It's a hindrance to feeling good. So why in the world would we ever choose to suffer? But for the one who has the mind of Christ, there is something far more valuable at hand in this life than comfort, right? If God's greatest good for us was comfort in this life, then that is exactly what we would have, right? And yet we find that uh, we can be very uncomfortable here in this world and in this life. And so we believe by faith that there is something more valuable than being comfortable here and now, and that is the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus. Why would someone like Paul not only endure suffering, but say over and over again that he rejoiced in it? Right on, suffering, right? You guys excited? You don't look like it. Your faces are all grimaced and twisted up. Don't worry. There is joy in all of this. Why would someone rejoice in suffering? Because the outcome of suffering far outweighs the pain of enduring it in Christ. I'll say it again. The outcome of suffering far exceedingly outweighs the pain of enduring it. Paul wanted the Colossian church to know that he was not a man after his own gain. He was not seeking his own. He was not seeking to profit from them, to gain from them, to get something from them. He was about this one mission, to make Christ known for their 
benefit, for their benefit and for the glory of God alone. And Paul, I believe, knew very well the outcome of his suffering. He knew what the outcome of his suffering would be. There was no guessing. There was no hope and a prayer and a wish. He knew for certain what the outcome of his suffering was going to be. And he calls it an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That sounds pretty good. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And so in order to live this way, we actually have to believe God's Word. I know this is like back to basic stuff, but I'm a basics guy. The basics are the thing we want to do well in. If we get the basics down, we can take care of the rest. The basics. Do you believe God's Word? Do you believe that your suffering has a purpose? Do you believe that your suffering will produce an outcome that will be so good that the bad of the suffering will be as if it never existed? A light momentary affliction. Does it feel like that? No. But we have to learn to look down from God's perspective and see our life as this tiny little drop in the span of eternity, right? Every day to us often feels like it's the longest eternity. Yeah, we're like, oh man, I'm still suffering. Whatever it is, it still hurts, right? The pain is still there. I wake up today, the pain is still there. I wake up tomorrow, the pain is still there. Apart from this hope, that pain has no purpose. That pain is nothing but despair to us. But we have confidence because Jesus rose from the grave that that suffering is going to result in glory. And so Paul knew this, and so he was not lured away off course from his mission. He had a job to do. He did not fall into despair at his circumstances, right? Did Paul go through some crazy circumstances? Have any of us been through stuff even remotely comparable for Christ? Probably not. Probably not. But he saw them for what they were. He saw his task as laboring for the church of Jesus Christ. He was pouring his life out for the bride of our Lord. The precious people that Christ shed his blood for. The people sitting in this room right now. People sitting next to you, across from you, in front of you, and behind you. And Paul knew that he had been entrusted by God with this ministry to the church and he had to carry it out. And so he says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, this is why we have to understand the Bible as a whole and in context, because this sounds like Christ didn't suffer enough. So we can't just drop down in here and go, what is going on here? What Paul is saying is that after Christ suffered for sins once and for all, was that there was still much suffering to follow for his ministers, right? For his body, for those who would take the message of the cross out to the world. He said, in this life you will have what? Suffering, tribulation. A servant is not greater than his master, right? If the perfect man who did nothing wrong ever suffered greatly, what should we expect? That we're going to follow him and have a cushion, comfortable existence? It's impossible. Impossible. There is no way we are going to be faithful to Christ and not have tribulation in this life. Expect it. Rejoice in it. Because Jesus has been united to us, 
and us to Him through this gospel. And insomuch as we suffer with Him, we are sharing in His afflictions. That's what the apostles considered to be a great privilege, a great joy to share in the suffering of Christ, to follow in His footsteps, and to lay our lives down as He did, to submit ourselves to God's will, and to entrust ourselves entirely to Him, to entrust ourselves to the one who judges rightly, to entrust ourselves to the sovereign one. Come what may, right? May it be, come what may, I will rest all my days in the goodness of Jesus. His grace is sufficient for me. Whatever comes, do we believe that God is in control of circumstances? Do we believe that suffering is the very thing that transforms us into the image of Christ? If we believe that, then we don't have to be tossed around by every little circumstance in life. We can look forward and go, I see Jesus. I see the resurrection. That's where I'm going. Nothing is going to get in my way. Nothing is going to stop me. Nothing is going to deter me. Come what may, I see him, right? I see him. We have to entrust ourselves to rejoice in this suffering that we might more deeply know our Lord and endure all things, whatever it is, for the sake of his body, our brothers and sisters. We're so self-absorbed often that we see our own suffering and we just want to wallow in it and neglect everyone else around us when we forget that everyone else is suffering too, right? It's not just me that's going through stuff. It's all of you together. And we have not been called to walk through it as individuals. The body, right? It's an organism. We have parts that are working together. If the mouth is hungry, the fingers have to work in order to pick up the food, right? We have to bring that food to the mouth. The teeth have to chew it. The esophagus has to swallow it. The stomach has to digest it. We all need each other to do this. But the reality is, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, I wrestle with this question a lot. The reality is that we don't encounter much suffering for the name of Christ in this time and in this place. This is my first time preaching from the iPad. I'm kind of sketched out, but it's going okay. So forgive me if I get lost. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. At, At certain times, I'm thanking God that we don't suffer in that way. And then at other times, I'm thinking... The more that the church is pressed, the more that it cannot be stopped. In every place where the church is suffering the most, it's exploding, it's growing the most. And so I wrestle with this in my heart. Do I want the suffering? Do I not want the suffering? I don't know which is better. I certainly enjoy comfort, but then I look at places where the church is persecuted and the believers there have real faith. They have nothing in this life. They know this life is going to be nothing but suffering for them. And yet they have joy, they have hope, they have assurance because they know the one in whom they have trusted. But we don't suffer that much for the name of Christ here. Some of you may more than others, but imprisonment, beatings, and death, they're just not really part of our daily worries as we go about our business, right? Have you guys ever been imprisoned or beaten for Christ? You're all alive, I see that. Um... And so the question is, does that remove us from the discussion? Does that make Paul's struggles irrelevant to us? Because I think sometimes we think, well, we don't really suffer that much, so this is kind of like whatever, you know? I mean, this doesn't really apply to me. 
I would say by no means, because if Paul rejoiced to suffer, can we not then rejoice to strive a little bit? If Paul rejoiced to suffer, can we not rejoice to be inconvenienced, to be tired, to be frustrated, to be uncertain, to be uncomfortable, to be weak, to be misunderstood? Can we not endure those things for the sake of Christ and his body? If Paul rejoiced to suffer, can we not rejoice in giving a little bit of ourselves up for him? How much of yourself and your desires are you willing to let go of for the one who died for you? Is it your aim to live for yourself, to make yourself great and to make your life good? Or is it your aim to do good for the sake of the body and for the sake of the lost? What is our aim? Are you willing to let go of your desires for the others that Christ died for? Are you willing to miss a meal? Are you willing to lose old friends for his sake? Are you willing to sacrifice your entertainment? It's a big one, right? We love that. Are you willing to sacrifice finances? Are you willing to entrust your money that's not yours to the one who gave it to you? Are you willing to uh, lose an hour of sleep, lose some rest time for the sake of a brother and sister who might be in need? Are we willing to rejoice in those things? Are we willing to face fear for the sake of the body? Are we willing to put ourselves out there? Are we willing to risk looking like a fool for the sake of Christ? Sorry, I had to do it. Look like a fool. Who cares? God says I'm his. I'm precious. I'm beloved in his sight. If anyone thinks I'm a fool, sorry. God's my dad, you know? Take it up with him. He made me this way, right? I'm a fool for Christ's sake, and I'm happy to do that. Are you willing to give your time and energy to invest in the people around you? And furthermore, are you willing to do it with joy? If we're just going to do it begrudgingly, then what's the point? You might as well just stay home. But are you willing to serve with joy? Do we have to be coerced into participating in the things of God? Do we have to have our arm pulled behind our back to give to Him? Or is it something that we can do with great cheer and great joy, knowing that it's all worth it. Do you know the value of serving God's church? It's a good question. Do we really appreciate the value of that? Do I appreciate the value of that? Because look, it is not my job, contrary to maybe popular belief, it's not my job as a pastor to coerce you into doing things that you don't want to do. That is not what I am here to do. God gave you a new heart. God gave you new desires. I can't do that for you. My job is to show you from God's word the blessedness of following him and let you decide for yourself. Is it worth it? It's my job to show you the blessedness of dying to ourselves and living for Christ and his word. I'll tell you because the Bible tells us that it's the greatest joy and the highest value in this life. If you believe it and you walk in it, you will know that this is true. But if you think neglecting it and going after what you want is going to get you what you want, you're going to find out time and time and time again that you're dead wrong. When we sin against God thinking we're going to get what we want, do we ever get what we want? Yes or no? Sin is deceitful, right? It's my favorite word for it. 
It is deceitful. It's a lie. It over-promises and under-delivers every single time without fail. We need more and more and more of it just to feel that same high that we got the first time we went for it. And eventually, it's enslavement and shame and guilt and destruction and hopelessness. That is where it leads. There's a way that seems right to a man, the end of which is death. We need our attention refocused on what actually matters. And again in verse 24, Paul saw... Paul saw... Paul saw... Paul saw his life and ministry as a stewardship. This was something that God had entrusted to him. And the ministry that God gave to Paul was to, verse 25, look with me there, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did I say the first point? I don't think I did. Number one was uh, that making Christ known is worth suffering for. Forgive me, guys, you note takers. Making Christ known is worth suffering for, not just to the outsider, but to the person next to you, right? To make Christ known is the key of evangelism and discipleship. It's not like, you know, Christ is for evangelism and then something else is for discipleship. To make Christ known is worth suffering for. Sorry about that. Got that? All right. Number two, knowing Christ is the goal of God's Word. Don't worry, there's only four. There's not like six or seven here, so you won't be here all day. Knowing Christ is the goal of God's Word. Paul says that God chose him for this ministry, and that ministry was to make the Word of God fully known. And according to this text, what is the fullness of God's Word? It is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to Daniel to Isaiah and every prophet in between, God was speaking from cover to cover of the one who was to come. And those who wrote the Scriptures, they inquired, they searched for what the Holy Spirit was indicating about the suffering of Jesus and the glories that were to follow. But only now, now in these last times, has this mystery been fully revealed to the church. And so it's no longer a mystery. It's a mystery revealed. And what was the great mystery that drives the story of redemption all the way from Genesis, from cover to cover, What is the fullness of God's revelation to mankind? What light has been shown on the shadows of the old covenant and the signs and the types and the feasts and the rituals? What is the fullness of all the promises that God has made to His covenant people? Who would be the one to reconcile Jew and Gentile together back to God? To crush the head of the serpent? To be the blessing to all nations? What riches did God graciously choose to reveal in this mystery. That is verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
you guys have ever watched a TV show or a movie with a cliffhanger character reveal, then you are familiar with this feeling. There's some character who has not been revealed, and the whole thing builds up to this reveal, and you cannot wait to see who this character is or what this character is like. You know it's coming from the get-go, and you know that this character is going to change the entire story, and you know that the implications of this character are all over the story. They're all over the narrative right from the start. The whole thing builds up to this reveal. And every detail of the plot is tied up in this one person's involvement. We just can't quite see exactly how yet. And all this anticipation and expectation is built up and built up. And finally, after, what, like an hour and a half of story building or binge-watching three seasons of this show, you're just like, who is it? What's it going to be like? And you just can't, you keep watching. You're like, what is going to happen? And then this character finally shows up, right? And it's epic. You're like, oh, and nothing is the same, right? The whole story from that point forward shifts in a completely different direction. I don't want to use any, like, egregious examples. Um, like, Stranger Things, you know? They, you finally see the dude who's... No, okay, never mind. Anyway, it's, it's a big deal. And so we get that excited about movies or, and TV shows, and we're like, we, we are compelled. We have to know who is this person and how is this all going to turn out. Well, this, this book is God's ultimate reveal. It's his story, an eternal story of redemption. It's not some little story about hobbits or, or you know, people with laser swords. It is the story of all stories. It's not a two-hour movie. It's not a four-season show. It's a story that spans across all of time. A story that affects the eternal destiny of every person who has ever lived or ever will live. This character reveal is going to be the deciding factor in eternity. And from the very beginning, this anticipates the coming of one man and what he would accomplish, the fullness, the purpose, the end of all of God's revelation to man is this mystery that Paul preached, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what God wants us to know. It's the climax of his word in its entirety Christ in us. So all the foreshadowing through people and practices and feasts and miracles and laws and sacrifices was to point to this reality that is now our living hope, and that is union with Jesus Christ. Union with Jesus Christ. This is one of the most important doctrines for you to understand as a Christian. One people with one Lord living within us and present among us. So for those of you who love knowledge, who love to know things, this right here is the pinnacle of all knowledge. There is nothing you can know that is greater than this, union with Christ. Because in the knowledge of this truth, we truly find all that we need. We find all that our heart longs for. We find all that we seek after is right here. And yet at the same time, it's a reality that we so often take for granted. You know, that's the basics, that's the milk, that's for the babes in Christ. Give me the real stuff. No, this is the real stuff. This is the one thing that we so often neglect to give attention to or consider the magnitude of, and it is never going to grow 
old. It is never going to lessen in our minds. The more that we pursue Him, the greater it becomes. The more that we pursue Him, the more we find that it's mind-blowing. It's incomprehensible. It's love that cannot be understood. The more that we seek Him, the more that we find the fact that this truth is truly enough for us. It's enough that God would save and dwell within fallen humans. That's enough. Is there another knowledge that's more worthy of our attention than that? Is there another knowledge that's more significant? Is there something else out there that will do what that truth does to us? That truth changes everything. That truth changes everything about the way we think, the way we act, the way we live our lives, and the way we hope. Are there details of this life that are more significant than what Christ has done? I talk to folks all the time that can tell you everything there is to know about the most meaningless stuff. And I'm not hating. I know a lot of stupid information, too, about stuff that nobody else cares about, but I think it's interesting. But, man, people will talk ad nauseum about stuff, and you're like, that's cool, dude. And then I'm like, man, tell me about Jesus. And it's like, eh. you know, it's kind of like, eh, you know, he's a savior. It's like, why do we have such passion for all these lesser things? But when it comes to knowing Christ, it's like, Ooh, I don't have that much to say. I'm just baffled by that. Like, this is the only knowledge that matters. Is there a source of strength and hope and assurance and love greater than this? No. Is there any knowledge that's worth pursuing that we could hold up next to Christ and say, I think I'll dedicate myself to that? Never. That the perfect one, the holy one, the all-powerful creator and judge of all things would qualify us to share in the inheritance of his son. That he would make you a son and you a daughter. Incredible. That he would deliver us from the domain of darkness, this is Colossians 1, and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That he would redeem us and reconcile us to himself by forgiving our sins at his own cost. God did that. That by uniting us to his life and his death, that Christ would make us alive from the dead and raise us with himself and present us, sinners, distant from God, hostile toward him, doing evil deeds, that he would present us to be holy and blameless before the Father, clothed in his righteousness that was given to us as a free gift, that God would share his glory with us. There is no greater knowledge than that. There's no greater revelation, there's no greater truth, and there is no greater hope. And if we are going to stand firm in this evil world, if we're going to resist the devil, if we're going to resist false teaching, if we're going to resist doubt and despair and anxiety and fear and temptation and the deceitfulness of sin, we need to know Christ. We need to know the fullness of God's Word. And we need to treasure this truth like Paul did. A truth that is so glorious that it is more valuable than life itself. He said, I'm pouring myself out. I'm like a 40 for the fallen homies. Blip, 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 blip. There goes my life, right? What's my life? It's a vapor. It belongs to Christ. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. I now live the life that I live for the one who died for me and rose again. Verse 28. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So point number three, knowing Christ is the way to maturity. Knowing Christ is the way to maturity. Him we proclaim. One of the great theologians of the 1500s said, in referring to this verse, nothing can be taught that has more of perfection than Christ. Him we proclaim. Jesus was the sum total of Paul's preaching. And for Paul, preaching Christ was not sufficient just to save, but to grow saints into spiritual maturity. That is why we preach Christ week in and week out. See, the gospel is not just an entry-level subject. It's not just a, a, a turnstile that we go through to enter into the realness of the Christian life, to be dispensed of when we no longer need it. The gospel is the thing, it is the knowledge that sees us through to growth and maturity. We're reminded of 1 Corinthians 2. You guys probably know this one. Oh, it's on the pulpit. Sweet. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message of God. I'm starting to scratch. I'm sorry, y'all. In his parallel letter to the Ephesian church, Paul speaks to this very same thing. And notice here how he equates Christian maturity to not being duped by false teaching in the church. You know that you've reached maturity when all this garbage can come through and you go, that's trash. That's not truth. That's not, that's not the Word of God. That's a sign of Christian maturity. When people can come to you and say, hey, man, I learned this crazy new thing about the Word of God. And you go, mm-hmm, yeah, I don't think so, right? There's nothing new. This is old news, and it's good news. It's not new news. It's good. It's good. We are just handing down what has already been handed down to us. There's nothing new. And so to reach maturity is to be able to discern through all the nonsense that's out there and hold firm to the gospel, to the real Christ. This is from Ephesians chapter 4. Same desire as for the Colossian church. He wrote this at the same time. He says, and, and Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is... This guy can really write a sentence, man. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. <sighs> okay. Maturity, pressing on toward manhood, womanhood, is knowing Christ. It is as simple as that. It is the knowledge of the Son of God working in us by the power of the Spirit 
that will ultimately bring about growth and maturity in God's people. It is not the knowledge of current events. It's not hidden secret knowledge. It's not the law. It's not man's philosophies and psychologies and psionomies. It's none of that. That is not what we need to grow into maturity. It's not picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and our own strength. It is knowing Jesus. From the greatest to the least of us, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. No one is exempt from needing this knowledge. Not the smartest person on earth, not the dumbest person on earth. It doesn't matter. Everyone needs this knowledge. And on the other hand, no one is excluded from receiving this knowledge. There's no one that God has deemed unworthy to be presented this knowledge. The gospel of Christ is for everyone. It is for the rich and for the poor, the Jew and the Gentile. There is no distinction, and the goal remains the same, to present every person mature in Christ. This was Paul's greatest joy and the end to which he dedicated his life. He said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul saw this as a worthy task and a glorious task and a task that he by himself was not sufficient for but a task that Jesus had called him to, equipped him for, and empowered him to carry out. And that same stewardship now extends to you and to me, wherever God has placed us. We are entrusted with this wonderful mystery, Christ for sinners, to know him and to make him known. That's what we're here for. And now we'll close in the beginning of chapter 2. Verses uh, 1 through 4. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So again, Paul defends his ministry against that of these false teachers. He's making it clear that he has a personal and pastoral concern for these people. And it's his great desire to encourage them, to encourage them. And what do we find is the source of their hearts being encouraged? I should have this by now. Knowing Christ. So number four, knowing Christ is our security. Knowing Christ is our security. Paul's desire for the church at Colossae, at Laodicea, at Philippi, and for the church as a whole was that we would be knit together in love around the person of Jesus Christ. That is what we are fulfilling right now as we sit together in this room. His desire was that they would experience the great blessing and encouragement of being one, of being one, around the truth of God, when we all embrace the truth together, peace and agreement flow forth from there, one with another. God's people gathered in union and love for one another is one of the greatest foretastes of heaven that we will have this side of eternity. If you're holding up something else next to gathering on Sunday morning and say, I think I want to do that, realize that this is, this is as close as we're going to get to the eternal state while we're here on earth. God's people gathered and singing to Him, 
glorifying and worshiping Him together, it is truly as things ought to be. And as we seek Him together, we find great security in Him. Firstly, security in our salvation as His church. There is a mutual encouragement that comes from sharing our faith with one another. That's why we're commanded to gather, right? We need to be together because there's a building of the body, there's a growth that takes place as we minister here to one another. And Paul is saying here that the goal, this is, a, this is again wordy sentence, the goal is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So let's just break that down. To have understanding, to have true and full knowledge of Christ and of His gospel is to reach for the full riches of assurance. To know Christ is to know assurance. To know Him is to know security. And to have the riches of full assurance is a wealth that we cannot put anything up next to to compare. To have assurance, to know. To know that you know that you know that you know. As Arturo preached last week, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it. We know that we have it. See, there is wisdom and understanding and knowledge that men offer, especially men who pervert the Word of God and peddle it as a self-help program or a gateway to secret knowledge or a to-do list in order to please God. But true divine wisdom and spiritual knowledge come through Jesus Christ alone. To know that He is the perfect Savior, the perfect man, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, the perfect substitute, the perfect friend, the perfect brother, the perfect Son of God, that He is all to us. And this is wisdom and knowledge and understanding and assurance. It's to know Christ. Simple as that. When we know this about Him, when we know who He is and what He's done, He assures us that we are His. He assures us that He loves us. He assures us that He cares for us, that He is working in us, that He laid down His life for us, that He has purchased us, and that He is coming back for us. That is what we need to know. In all of that, we have security. We have hope. We find strength. We have the means to walk in the newness of life. We have the means to love one another. It all comes back to what Jesus has already accomplished. Because he did, I can do, right? Because he forgave, I can forgive. Because he loved, I must love. Because he was patient, I can be patient. Because he endured suffering, I will endure suffering. Because he did it with his eyes set on the prize, I too will do it. That's Hebrews chapter 12, right? Let us lay aside every weight and sin that ensnares us, fixing our eyes on what? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Lay all this other stuff aside. Where are our eyes focused? On Him. On Him. That's how we run the race. You don't run the race like this, right? You're going to trip and fall on your face. You run a race looking toward the goal. You run a race focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is the finish line. That's the resurrection. That's the hope of glory. That He lived and died and was buried in our place and that He was raised for our justification. 
forever glorified as we also will be. That's it. If we understand that, we can persevere. If we understand that, we can love, we can sacrifice, we can suffer with joy, we can endure because we know Him. And we have our defense against false teaching. Say this, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. No one's going to be able to tell you another Jesus. No one's going to be able to sell you another Jesus because you know Him. You know Him. How do you spot a counterfeit? You study the real thing, right? You study the real thing. So grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Know Him and make Him known and you will find more and more what your heart truly desires. That you were made by Him and for Him. Made to know Him. Made to enjoy Him. And to glorify Him forever. Amen? Amen. To know Him and to make Him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have revealed this great mystery to us. Christ in us, the hope of glory that Jesus would give us life by coming and making his dwelling inside of us. God, we thank you that you chose to make this known to us, the riches of this mystery, the riches of assurance and of knowing our Lord, of knowing our Savior. God, we pray for the strength to seek you. We pray for the patience and the endurance and the perseverance to continue on through suffering and to rejoice in all that you're doing in comfort, in struggle, in trial, in pain, in suffering. We know that you are preparing us for something so much greater. And so, God, we believe you. We believe you this morning. We reaffirm our belief in you afresh. You have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? So we entrust ourselves to you afresh, realign our hearts and our minds, Lord, to know Christ and to make him known, to have a singular focus in this life, to let the other things fall away so that we may run unhindered the race of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.